African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Time has just gone 11 o'clock on the dot here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikon Namiso and you're tuned in to African Dialogue. Of course, when the time hits 11 o'clock Central African time, you know exactly what time it is. It is time for African Dialogue. My name is Zikon Namiso and we're currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Today on the show, we'll actually be extending on yesterday's discussion as we'll be looking at some of the drama which unfolded folded yesterday, of course, as the former Egyptian president, Mohamed Morsi, appeared in court. But before we get into that, let's get an update from the news desk with Wissani Makubele. In the headlines, Congolese army commended for recapturing M23 rebel strongholds. Heavy shooting from guns and anti-aircraft weapons erupts in the Libyan capital, Tripoli. And South African Minister of International Relations, Maitengwana Mashabane, upsets the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. Good morning. The joint summit of the SADC and the Great Lakes Conference on the conflict in the DRC has commended the Congolese Army and the Intervention Brigade comprising South African troops for recapturing M23 rebel strongholds. The meeting ended in the South African capital of Pretoria last night. It was attended by presidents from both regions to discuss the ongoing conflict in the DRC and other countries in the Great Lakes region. SADC Secretariat Stegomena Tex explains. The Joint Summit commended FADRC and the Intervention Brigade for recapturing M23 strongholds and restoring the government control. Joint Summit urged MONISCO and IB to maintain its enforcement mandate and the capability with regard to uprooting of all negative forces in the Eastern DRC. Joint Summit urged SADC and ICJR member states to hand over negative forces to their countries of origin within the spirit of the UN framework for peace, security and cooperation for DRC and the region. 
also an international of special envoys for the Great Lakes region, has called on both parties in the DRC conflict to remain committed to seeing the political process through to a final and principled agreement. In a joint statement released yesterday, the envoys urged M23 rebels to denounce its rebellion as already agreed. They also called upon the government of the DRC to restrain from further military action at this stage. Jocelyn Sambira has more. The peace talks between the DRC government and M23 rebels, known as the Kampala Dialogue, broke down in October after several days of negotiations where some progress was made. The agreement would also ensure accountability for human rights abuses as well as the disarmament and demobilization of the M23 rebel group. Heavy shooting from guns and anti-craft weapons has reportedly erupted in the capital of Libya, Tripoli. A militia source says the fighting occurred between militias in the eastern Sakul Juma area. A Facebook website shows two bent-out cars from the scene of the fighting. Libya faces chaos and anarchy as the government struggles to rein in militias, gangs and Islamist radicals in a country awash with arms two years after the outstar of former leader Muammar Gaddafi. A mix of strikes and protests for higher pay or more political rights has shut down much of Libya's oil output, depriving the government of its main source of income. The UN Relief and Works Agency is cutting back its services to Palestinian refugees in the Gaza Strip and the Israeli-occupied West Bank due to financial constraints. This move will affect thousands of Palestinian refugees who are dependent on aid to survive, Malfred Beck reports. The popular committees of the Palestinian refugee camps in the northern West Bank will shut down UN Relief and Works Agency offices Tuesday to protest reductions in services provided to Palestinian refugees in the region. The decision came after UNRWA decided to end the UN Money for Work program in Jenin District in the northern West Bank. The program offered temporary job opportunities to 23,000 family providers across the West Bank suffering dire economic conditions. And lastly, the South African Jewish Board of Deputies has bemoaned a remark by the country's international relations minister, Maitengwana Mashabani, that South African ministers do not visit Israel. Board Director Wendy Khan says the statement contradicts previous assurances that government wished to play a role in helping Israelis and Palestinians resolve their differences. She says it's also inconsistent with the South African foreign policy in general, which is not to boycott other governments. Khan says when the board last spoke to her, Guanama Shabane expressed an interest in South Africa playing a role in advancing the Israeli-Palestinian peace process by bringing about a negotiated two-state solution. And a recap of the top stories, Congolese army commended for recapturing M23 rebel strongholds. Having sh- heavy shooting from guns and anti-aircraft weapons erupts in the Libyan capital, Tripoli. And South African Minister of International Relations, Maitengwana Mashabane, upsets the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. And that's the news for now. It's back to Zikona Miso. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. 
from an African perspective. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back to African Dialogue, that report there by Wisani Makubela. There's a lot of Wisanis here in Channel Africa. You can't blame me for making such a mistake. Thank you, Wisani Makubele, for that news update, bringing the time to eight minutes after 11 here on African Dialogue. My name is Ziko Namiso, and today in the show, we're going to be focusing on some of the happenings which took place in court yesterday, as, of course, the ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi appeared. Now, yesterday on the show, we did have journalist Hediad Abdel Nabi joining us just to tell us exactly what was happening at the time yesterday when we were here having a conversation on African Dialogue. So we're going to extend a bit on that conversation today. Of course, joined by other guests on the show. Remember that African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. And you're also welcome to interact with us. Find us on Facebook, tweet us at Channel Africa One using the hashtag African Dialogue or you can simply SMS your views to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Now, Egypt's ousted leader Mohamed Morsi appeared in court yesterday telling the judge the case is illegitimate as he remains president. He and 14 other Muslim Brotherhood figures face charges of, among others, inciting the killing of protesters outside the presidential palace in 2012. And following Morsi's remarks and his refusal to dress in the correct attire, the judge did adjourn the trial until the 8th of January next year. Now, as you heard yesterday, if you're an avid listener of African Dialogue, you would have heard those news hot off the press yesterday as we were discussing with our journalist who is in Egypt joining us on the show. Now Morsi was then flown to Burj Al Arab uh, prison which is in Alexandria. Now to just make sense around some of the happenings and of course a background as to how we got to this point. We are joined on the line by a journalist who joined us yesterday that is Hejad Abdel Nabi. Good morning Hejad and thank you for joining us once again here on African Dialogue. Good morning, African Dialogue. Thank you. Also on the line, we've got Professor Gavin Cawthra, who is with the Wits University's Graduate School of Public and Development Management. Good morning, Professor, and thank you for joining us. Uh, good morning. Also on the line, we've got Tamara Rizai, who is with Human Rights Watch in Cairo. Good morning, Tamara. How are you this morning? Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting us to the thank show. Thank you for joining us. It does indeed promise to be a very interesting uh, discussion that we'll be having on the show. Be sure to send all your comments and your questions that you might have for uh, the guests on the line today on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. That's plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Now, Hedjad, I'm going to start with you because yesterday we really left things off at a very hot um, stage because you were really telling us what was happening at the time and there was indeed a lot of things that were happening at the time. Can you just give us an update as to exactly what it is that took place there yesterday as we look back on yesterday and, of course, moving forward from here on? Hey, Jed? Yes, it's for me, right? Yes. Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the two sessions of the trial were not long, but duration of the former president at the trial area 
at the police academy uh, lasted from 9 o'clock to around 1 o'clock before the judge adjourned and uh, postponed the trial to January 8th. And he was moved to a place called Burg el Arab, mm. a prison there, which is on the west coast of Cairo, uh, a little bit further up towards Libya from Alexandria. And uh, there uh, he uh, underwent medical examination. And according to security uh, statements from Alexandria, mm-hmm. that this is a normal procedure mm-hmm. because people who are detained have to go under this procedure before they go into the cell. Uh, other reports said that he had high blood pressure and high blood uh, sugar in the blood. Uh, on the two sessions, one of them was adjourned because he refused to put on uh, the white costume, mm-hmm. which is for pro- provisional detention, and then they uh, convinced him to put on that costume. Uh, but it seems that he put it on later, not during the trial, because what was said today is that he put it on in Burg el Arab, in, in, in that prison there. Mm. Uh, then the second session was a very... Uh, uh, chaotic session where everybody was shouting to everybody and it looked like uh, a fist fight but with words, not with mm. hands. And uh, it was so chaotic that the judge could not continue and again adjourned. Uh, that does indeed that uh, sound like there were some altercations. I mean, as you said, that they were not necessarily physical, but as you said, there was some verbal altercation that did take place. And of course, that's leading to the point that we are today. Now, let's look at some of the non-cooperating things. I mean, as you've mentioned, people were shouting at each other in court. And of course, the defiance not wearing um, the appropriate attire, that white cloak that you were talking about, which he, as you said, did wear later. Now, I'm going to pose this question to all three of you. Um, um, uh, on the line as as our guest here on African Dialogue. Now, what do, you know, the defiance and the non-cooperating and, and things like that, what does this actually do for the eventual fair trial and justice in this regard? I'm going to start with you, Professor. What does it do for justice? Yes, how does it, how, what, what kind of impact does it actually have in the process in itself and the fairness of it? Well, you know, M- Mercy's position, of course, is that you know, he was the victim of a coup, and um, he's been illegally he's been illegally charged, and that the, the people who carried out the coup should be in the court, not him. Mm. Um, so he's he's rejecting you know the the jurisdiction of the court effectively over, over him, mm. and arguing that this is simply <clears throat> victor's justice in the sense that the people who seized power and deposed him are prosecuting him. Uh, for offences when in fact they themselves have been guilty <laughs> mm. of uh, ordering the the, um, the deaths of many people and the effective banning of his organisation and the rounding up of thousands of detainees and so on. So it depends which side you're on, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me give over to tomorrow. Hold that thought, Professor. Tomorrow, your view on the impact that this can actually have on the trial in itself. I mean, with all these hiccups that seem to be um, coming to play in this regard. A lot of hiccups indeed, including before the trial. The fact that uh, Mohammed Nasri had been held incommunicado in an undisclosed military facility is already an issue because mm. his lawyer 
um, or any councils could not have access to him. Mm-hmm. Now, we as a human rights organization would have loved to see this trial yesterday as the first step towards accountability in Egypt over crimes committed time and time again against protesters. I mean, the... Um, the charges against the Morsi and the 14 co-defendants are not the only ones that could be brought against, you know, um, authorities and security forces. We have documented the killing of protesters in several incidents like Masiro, Mohammed Mahmoud. There have been several times where you, I mean, where, where Egyptian authorities should have asked the question, okay, who was responsible for the death of these people? Now, the problem with us is that this particular trial seems to come against the backdrop of a wider crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood, and it's only charges Muslim Brotherhood authorities over the killing of protesters. Mm-hmm. They were definitely implicated. We've documented this. We've documented the killings outside of the Sahadiyya Palace and Morsi was targeting. So we're not saying it did not happen. Only we're saying that we would like all crimes committed um, since the beginning of the, the protest in 2011 to be addressed by the Egyptian justice system. Well, that is the voice there of uh, Tamara Rezan, who is with Human Rights Watch in Cairo. And earlier you heard Professor Gavin Cawther, who's with the Wits University's Graduate School of Public and Development Management. As we are discussing around the trial of the ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi, which did indeed take place yesterday, but not without incident. As, of course, you've heard from the journalist who was actually um, there, able to give us exactly what was happening at the time. Bringing the time now to 17 minutes after 11 here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, Professor, we do know that um, at, at this stage, I mean, there have been some uh, sentiments coming through from analysts um, around the timing of the U.S. Secretary of State, John Kerry's unannounced visit to Egypt at this time. What are your take around um, uh, this, uh, this, this, what they've called a very awkward timing uh, for him? Yes, well, <clears throat> um, First of all, as you know, America refused to call the coup a coup <laughs> because if they, if, they, if they did that, it would have required them to have withdrawn their massive uh, military assistance to, to Egypt and potentially destabilized um, America's position in the, in the Middle East. But at the same time, I think the United States is becoming more, more and more concerned about the increase in authoritarianism of the regime of al-Sisi and the military, the military who clearly are in power, and the uh, abuses of human rights and, uh, you know, the dubious legal practices and so on, as, as um, the Human Rights Watch person was pointing out. So it's possible that, you know, Kerry is attempting to get them to ameliorate uh, some of their positions. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to take any decisive action because effectively mm-hmm. they've given a green light to the coup. Mm. Well, that is uh, the sentiments there, Professor Gavin Coulter, as we're asking around what has been uh, called uh, awkward uh, timing for the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry's unannounced visit to Egypt at this time. Just getting his sentiments around that. Tamara, your views? Well, our view is that um, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a complex, uh, mm. a new dynamic here in the relationship between the U.S. and Egypt. Mm. Um, Egypt is obviously an extremely important partner to the U.S., and it knows right now that um, 
the U.S. needs it. Mm. And so for us as a human rights organization, um, when while we generally go through partners of Egypt or any country really to pass messages and say, look, you really need to set your human rights record straight, we really would appreciate improvement on that front, it is now not really possible to do this through the U.S. or through the EU or through the traditional political and um, business partners of Egypt because Egypt is snubbing them at the moment. So it puts us in a bit of an awkward position because the new partners to Egypt are countries that did not rank really high in human rights anyway. So we can't really go to the Emirates and say, could you help us with human rights in Egypt when the Emirates is um, a country that, you know, whose human rights record against, uh, for example, migrant workers is not great. So it, it puts our advocacy efforts um, at stake. And so for us, this is a situation where we want to engage directly with the Egyptian authorities, have that, a bilateral dialogue, and not go through third parties the way we traditionally do. Well, indeed, some multi-layered opinions coming through there from both Tamara and the professor around um, the uh, U.S. Secretary of State, John Kerry's unannounced visit to Egypt at this time and, of course, uh, the implications that it may have and so on. Do you agree or do you disagree with some of their sentiments in this regard? Please do find us on Facebook. Send us those messages. Send them through to us or you can just simply SMS us to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. That's plus two seven eight two three three two five. Nine zero five. Now, um, yesterday, hey, Dad. I mean, we spoke about uh, the situation that was uh, on the ground at the moment uh, yesterday when we had our discussion, and you were telling us about an increasing number of the uh, the crowd, you know, outside um, the court as it stood at that time. And of course, we do know that uh, the cabinet did announce that it was all systems go yesterday. But I mean, from a journalist's point of view, what is the situation on the ground at this point? I mean, yesterday when we left our conversation, it did sound like um, the issue, the, the, the situation was quite tense and volatile at the time. Yeah, it has become very strange, the situation in mm. Egypt, because mm. yesterday was a day and today is another day completely. Today it's uh, the first day of the Hitra uh, anniversary, which mm. is uh, the Muslim uh, New Year. And uh, it is a holiday, it's an official holiday, mm. and it's very quiet mm. and uh, People are um, probably either, uh, you know, celebrating at home for lunch or going out. There is no tension at all today as till now. I don't know later on what's going to happen. but And there were no calls for demonstrations today. Well, hey, Dad, they're talking about a very strange contradiction from yesterday to today, um, talking about the situation on the ground there in Egypt as it stands at this moment. Time has just gone 22 minutes after 11 here on African Dialogue. My name is Zikon Amiso. Please do stay on the line to you, our guest, and for you who's listening, do not go anywhere. We're coming back after this. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Welcome back to African Dialogue. We're currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Zikon Amisa and I'm joined on the show on the line today by Hadid Abdel Nabi, a journalist in Egypt, Professor Gavin Cawthro with the Wits University, as well as Tamara Rezai, who is with Human Rights Watch in Cairo, of course, as we're discussing around all everything that is um, around the court appearance of the ousted Egyptian president Mohammed Morsi yesterday and of course looking at the situation today earlier just before we went on that break uh, the journalist was giving an account of what she has called a strange contradiction as to what was taking place yesterday she explained a very tense and volatile situation to today which is of course uh, the also the Muslim New Year so some celebrations taking place there a very uh, calm situation at this point in Egypt as she's mentioned. Now, earlier, um, uh, Tamara, you spoke about this court case in itself actually being a first step to accountability. Can you elaborate on that uh, for us and how you feel that it has not really, it, it, it doesn't give any hope of this being that first step for accountability, as you mentioned earlier on? I'd like to unpack that a bit, a bit for us, and I'll bring the professor in shortly. Tamara? Well, it does give a bit of hope if we want to look at the glass being half full in the sense that there has been uh, a first session of the trial yesterday and despite the chaos and the commotion that was mostly caused by supporters of one party or the other in the courtroom, despite that, the dealing between the presiding judge and the lawyers of the defendants was actually decent. So in that sense, maybe, slightly maybe, this is one first sign of moving towards accountability. Mm-hmm. Now the real test will be, um, will, will accountability over the death of protesters only be driven um, through or towards uh, Muslim Brotherhood leadership? Or will we also start opening cases against uh, the security forces who were themselves implicated in many other deaths of protesters, security forces being now evidently part of the um, current um, interim authorities. So we would also be addressing the responsibility of current authorities, the Ministry of Interior, for example, um, or even the military, because even the military has been implicated in death of protesters. Mm. So unless we open up cases against everyone who might have been implicated over the past three years in killing protesters at demonstrations, yesterday's trial will only be select will only be addressing one party which is the Muslim Brotherhood. Professor? Yeah, yes, well I, I, I completely agree with Tamora. Mm. I mean uh, one can't I can't avoid the impression that this is you know, a very selective prosecution and mm. in fact that it's a show trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's fairly obvious that, that um, all sides have been engaged in human rights abuses and that the real responsibility for this probably lies with the military and the police who may or may not have been acting under instructions from one or another of their political principles, but there's no sign of them um, uh, you know, being prosecuted for, mm. for any of these, these offences. Um, and, um, you know, with regard to the awkwardness of, of this trial uh, coinciding with Kerry's unannounced visit, mm. I mean, it's clear to me that this trial is, is, is a political trial. It's under, it's under political control, <clears throat> and they could easily have delayed it. So they clearly wanted to, in a way, embarrass uh, Kerry and put, try and put America on the back foot a bit, because there is a lot of anti-American feeling in in Egypt, coming particularly um, 
from the supporters of the military. Strange enough, although the military is the primary recipient of American aid, uh, there's a feeling that uh, you know the Americans are, are softening their position mm-hmm. and um, not uh, not giving their, their full support to, to, to the current regime. And as you know, they have suspended <coughs> or postponed uh, some of their arms transfers and so on. Now, Professor, let me ask you, I mean, on that note, do you believe that these sanctions that have been put against the interim leadership in itself are actually helping in any way? Um, of course, they will hurt. Mm. Um, but but um, America's not really sanctioning Egypt. It's simply postponed, as they say, <laughs> the delivery of certain <laughs> weapons and uh, tem- it seems temporarily withheld some of the aid. Uh, the sanctions that have been put in place are, have been put in place by the African Union, which has suspended Egypt from its um, membership of, of the AU. Yes. Um, strongly supported, by the way, by our government, South Africa. Um, but on the other hand, other countries have stepped into the breach, notably Saudi Arabia, uh, which has given its full support to, to the current regime and has offered to effectively replace American aid with its own aid. Mm-hmm. And this, in turn, it seems to me, is creating some tensions, although they deny it, uh, between the Saudis and the Americans. Um, as you know, the Saudis, rather bizarrely, having lobbied for it, refused to take their, their non-permanent seat on the Security Council mm-hmm. recently. Now, I'm going to bring in Hedjad. I mean, you are a journalist and you are, you know, you're following this story very closely. Um, now, um, the professor was talking about um, the trial in itself. I mean, he says uh, personally that he sees it as a political trial as opposed to um, a legitimate exercise, rather, of seeking justice. I mean, in terms of um, uh, what Tamara was also alluding to, the fact that everybody should actually be put in center stage as opposed to only the Muslim uh, Brotherhood um, uh, members actually getting uh, the, the, the full might of the law, so to speak. Now, what are your sentiments, you know, as a journalist? What have you been able to, to gather um, as a journalist, you know, on the ground around um, the trial, people believing that it's a political trial as opposed to this legitimate exercise of justice? Hey, Dad? Yes. Um, well, I think it is not 100% a political trial mm-hmm. uh, because the charges are valid. I mean, People were killed. People were killed because there were, uh, uh, say, some orders that came from the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, confronting the demonstrations at the presidential palace. The president, the ousted president, failed to protect the the, the citizens, mm-hmm. and this is a major obligation of the state to protect uh, the citizens of a country. Now, I would say that partly it could be partly political, but there are legal aspects of it which are quite valid. What is important about this trial and other trials to come is that Egypt has a chance to consolidate justice and uh, a trial that would not be tarnished by political uh, implications. And... I hope the transitional government would be able to accomplish this because, for example, what has been today released, reported in the media by one of the former president, 
president's uh, senior aides that he gave a full story about the background of the ousting of the former president. And in it, he says, the, the, the senior aide, that the former president was fearing some plots against him, including death threats, and that the presidential guards, who are the sole uh, responsible for the security of the president, went to him and asked him to succumb to the orders of military, which is to set, step down. And at that moment, his senior aide said that he had uh, given or ready to give maximum compromises. But at, on that day, the 3rd of July, it was too late. Mm. So you see there is a lot going on, and uh, I feel there is a chance for Egypt to come out clean from this trial. Well, that is the sentiments of hated Abdel Nabi talking around um, the issue of whether this is a political trial or a genuine exercise of justice, so to speak. Do you agree with the professor or do you agree with her sentiments in this regard? Please do send those comments and questions through to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. That's plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Remember that we're also on the social networks. You can tweet us at Channel Africa 1, that's at Channel Africa 1, and you can pose your question using the hashtag African Dialogue and we'll be able to access all those thoughts around this particular subject. Time has just gone almost 25 minutes before the top of the hour. You're still tuned into African Dialogue here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and my name is Zikona Miso. Tamara, now let's move, I mean, we've really just delved into, this is a very, um, I think it's a very multi-layered uh, topic to really tackle, so to speak, because there's a lot of issues that come into play as to and into some of the reasons that um, we have seen um, the problems that we have been facing, or Egypt rather, has been facing in this regard. Now, in your, you are with Human Rights Watch in Cairo. Let's talk about um, the, the human rights issues now that um, this actually directly affects for the people on the ground um, in Egypt. Can you talk us through some of uh, the experiences that you've had? Yeah, it's a challenging situation in Egypt. It's always been in many ways, mm. but the political polarization that is now that has taken the country by storm over the past few months makes it very difficult to place any discussion strictly on a human rights basis. There is so much um, anti-other sentiment that uh, the other has been somehow dehumanized, regardless of which which party you belong to. And considering the political um, transition that the country is undergoing and the fact that there is a crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood generally, and there is still inciting discourse from the part of the Muslim Brotherhood that does not make it easy to, you know, talk of uh, reconciliation or inclusiveness or a political process altogether. The victim is often human rights generally, because human rights must prevail regardless of who is in power, and Egypt must be, um, must be faithful to its international obligations and to its national laws, really, regardless of who is in power. Um, human rights have suffered under Mubarak. We have suffered in all the transitional periods since 2011, and they suffer now. I would like to agree with what Hidayat was saying about uh, the fact that um, crimes did happen on these two days of 
5th and 6th of December 2012. So as a human rights organization, we have documented the killing and the illegal detention right outside the presidential palace by the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood of people who were protesting the constitutional declaration that Morsi had put in place. So there is a lot, there, there is full truth in the events as they happen and in the fact that crimes were committed. What we're challenging, again, is the fact that, yes, these crimes have happened and there should be accountability for them, as should be accountability for a lot of other crimes that have happened since 2011, which will bring into question the role of the police, the Ministry of Interior, the Republican Guard, the security forces generally. Hedaya, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I don't disagree that all crimes uh, that touch upon or do affect human rights should be uh, put online. There is, uh, there should be no exception. That is the voice of Hedayat Abdel Nabi, journalist in Egypt, also there tomorrow as our Human Rights Watch in Cairo, as well as Professor Gavin Cawthorne joining us on the line here on African Dialogue, really getting into this uh, particular topic as, of course, we're discussing everything around the court appearance of the ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi yesterday and, of course, the outcomes of that appearance yesterday, as we know. Uh, Hedayat also mentioning that today is the Muslim New Year, uh, talking about a contradiction in terms of the situation on the ground as opposed to yesterday. Bringing the time now almost 20 minutes before the top of the hour, which means we don't have much time left for our discussion. We're going to move to a short break, and when we come back, we'll wrap up. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. you've just tuned in, you've just missed out on a big big, big chunk of our discussion here on African Dialogue as we are talking around the court appearance of ousted Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi yesterday and of course the outcomes thereof joining us on the line to give us greater insight in this regard we are joined by Hedayat Abdel Nabi, a journalist in Egypt, Professor Gavin Cothra from the Wits University in South Africa as well as Tamara Rezai who is with Human Rights Watch in Cairo. Now to you our guests as we are you know, getting ready to wrap up now we don't have much time left but i'd just like to pose i mean this question to all three of you moving forward from here on what are we most likely to see happening and i mean um, in the long run if uh, the the asset president is indeed uh, found guilty you know what sort of uh, sentencing are we expecting from in 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 that regard i mean this is of course just uh, preempting or just sort of giving um, an outlook as to where to from now professor i'm going to start with you well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not on the ground in Egypt. I mean, I, I, I visited there shortly before the, uh, you know, the, the, the coup, um, and I, I visited there on a, on a number of occasions before that. Um, but it, it's difficult, quite frankly, to from a distance to see much light at the end of the tunnel. Um, the belief is that somehow normality can be restored and new elections can be held. 
Um, but the country is under a state of emergency, which has just been extended. As I said, it appears that selective justice has been taking place. Um, the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, has effectively been banned. Um, whether they will formally, officially ban it or not, or just effectively drive it underground, I don't know. But it's difficult to see that it can come back to any form of elections. And uh, the fear is, of course, that <clears throat> some of the Islamists are being driven into the hands of, uh, you know, underground or terrorist organizations, mm. uh, which could lead to further destabilization. So it, it's very difficult from where I sit to, to see that, that Egypt can claw its way out of this and actually hold elections that will be seen internationally as free and fair and seen by, by the Egyptian people as free and fair. It's clear that the military regime has a lot of support, but it's also clear that there is massive polarization and that you know uh, there's a potential menu for, for further disruption and violence. Mm. Well, very bleak sentiments coming through there from uh, the professor talking about um, him really not seeing um, a light at the end of the tunnel, but of course looking at things from a distance as he is not, as he's mentioned, on the ground there in Egypt. Tomorrow, your sentiments moving forward? Um, yes, I am on the ground. And again, I do see the polarization and I do see... Um, uh, the inciting language used by the media as well as both parties that does not help at all in uh, in bridging the gap. So, yes, we do have concerns as a human rights organization that if the, the judicial process itself um, does not move forward in transparency and on the basis of due, you know, due process and international standards, then the whole the whole process will be flawed. We do have these concerns, and this is precisely why we've asked to monitor these trials while keeping an eye on the broader political situation to see how the broader uh, Muslim Brotherhood movement will be treated anyway. Uh, over to you, Haddad. Yeah, I think I would stick first to the concept about the innocent until found guilty. And therefore, your question to the three of us, I would prefer it you to pose it to us after the verdict, whatever it is. Uh, on the future of Egypt, the, the very distant, the very, I mean, not distant, the one closer uh, future of Egypt, I think that if the elections, whether the parliamentary and uh, the presidential, come out clean, this will give, uh, clean in the sense of the West, that there is one man, one vote, uh, no fraud and no... Uh, under the table deals, which no under the table deals are acceptable, but not uh, playing with uh, the the hearts and minds of the voters in a wrong manner. Uh, if this goes on rather well, uh, then I think we will be able to bridge the difficult times. Well, those are the sentiments of our guests here on African Dialogue as we talk about the Egyptian situation there and, of course, the implications that this particular court case, which has got the whole world, you know, for uh, looking onto Egypt as to exactly what's going to take place there. That is, of course, the court um, uh, case of the ousted Egyptian president, Mohamed Morsi, which took place yesterday. We're just looking at some of the outcomes thereof and, of course, looking onwards as to what might take place moving forward. Join 
joining us, we had Haydad Abdel Nabi, a journalist in uh, Egypt, Professor Gavin Cawthra from Vitz University's Graduate School of Public and Development Management, as well as Tamara Zai, who is with Human Rights Watch in Cairo. And at this moment, I'd just like to thank all three of you for giving us your time and joining us here on African Dialogue so that you can enlighten us and, of course, our listeners largely around this particular subject and just to get into discussion around it and to get clarity on some of those things that we were not too clued up on. Thank you very much for joining us, and we do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank well, you. that was no, Hidayat Abdel-Nabi. And, yeah. and good luck to thank my you, thank colleagues. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you, need it. Thank you <laughs> Professor. Okay. Yeah, we need good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Huh? Okay. Well, those were the three guests joining us here. Very serious situation, but also being able to chuckle here and there um, as we are dealing with this particular situation here. You're still tuned into African Dialogue on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikho Nami, so we're going to move to a short break. We'll come back for economics after this. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Fifteen minutes before the top of the hour here on African Dialogue, it's time now for our economics update with, uh, what's his name? (laughs) Tavis Olihuku. South Africa's central bank plans to invest in the Kenyan or rather Korean currency, the one and the Australian and the New Zealand dollars as it diversifies its currency reserves. South African Reserve Bank's Deputy Governor, Daniel Minele, says that the bank has also taken steps to invest in new asset classes and new currencies. The bank is also investing in covered bonds and mortgage-backed securities and has recently started trading in bond futures to mitigate the potential negative impacts of rising debt yields. South Africa is the first African Central Bank to be granted an investment quota for the Chinese onshore market. Zimbabwe's economy is expected to grow 6.1% next year from 3.4% this year on the back of rising revenues. The southern African country is experiencing an economic slowdown on the back of a deadline in agriculture output and jitters surrounding a July 31st election that was won by veteran leader Robert Mugabe. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa says he expects revenues to rise to $4.4 billion next year from $3.7 billion this year. The government expects more money from diamond sales after the European Union removed the sanctions on the state-owned Zimbabwe Mining Development Corporation. 
German luxury car maker BMW says a third quarter operating profit at its key automotive division dropped more than expected due to the cost of new technology and price discounts in core European markets. Munich-based company says that the division's earnings before interest and tax dropped 6% to $2.1 billion. BMW is revamping its product lineup, launching a combined 25 new vehicles this year and next year. The cost of launching these new vehicles weighed on company books. The South African credit providers have warned that a proposed plan to remove adverse credit information from profit of blacklisted South African consumers could lead to massive job losses. Credit Providers Association's Executive Director, Daryl Burning, says the rollout of the plan could lead to lenders taking a conservative approach when granting credit. I think that credit providers will be more cautious, as I've said, probably more constriction of credit than actual expansion of credit and more loss of jobs because the consumer credit market contributes 13% of our GDP. The consumer credit market feeds all sorts of sectors of the market. It feeds the tax base, it feeds the production environment, it feeds the important export aspects of, of depending on which um, item is funded by credit, from cars to clothing, production of housing, for example. So it has very broad-reaching ramifications. The US dollar trades at 10.15 South African rands at 8.50 Botswana Pulas, 5.48 Zambian Kwajas. It's also trading at 0.62 British pound at 0.74 euro. Gold, $1,317. Platinum, $1,454 an ounce. Brand crude, 105.24 cents a barrel. Economics update. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you to Tabi Solihuku for that economics update here on African Dialogue. Time has just gone almost 10 minutes before the top of the hour, which means that it is time for our sports update. But let me remind you of those ways in which you can communicate with us. Just before we get that update, please do SMS us to plus 27823325905. Visit our webpage. I promise you it is exciting. That is www.channelafrica.org. There's always something that you can gain on that particular web page and of course as I said if you have missed some of these shows you are able to stream some of the shows on our web page which is www.channelafrica.org or you can always tweet us where we get your direct sentiments and comments that is of course at Channel Africa 1. It is now time for our sports update. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. 
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thanks for joining us in your sports update. Let's start with soccer. The FIFA Under-17 World Cup semi-finals takes place tonight. Former champions Nigeria take on Sweden in the final at the Rashid Stadium in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. The West Africans have been dominating at this level and can rightfully claim to be the tournament's most feared team. Our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani reports. other semi-final defending champion Mexico take on Argentina. In an athletics, the South African government has congratulated local athletes for their outstanding performance at the New York City Marathon, which had over 50,000 participants on Sunday. Paralympian Ernst van Dijk won the second place in the wheelchair division, while Usapo April came third in the men's elite category. Two other South Africans finished in the top 60 in the hand cycle division. And retired athletes have asked Athletics Kenya and the government to address the issue of doping in the country. The topic dominated the Usain Gishu Sport Stakeholders Forum last week Thursday in Eldoret Town. Guests included former Commonwealth 800-meter champion Mike Boyd and former 3,000-meter Olympic steeplechase Patrick Sang. Channel Africa's Francis Muteki in Nairobi in Kenya filed this report. Athletics Kenya AK will push for prison sentence for doping offenders which will be extended to the coaches and agents of the athletes who will be handling them. AK President Isaiah Kipagat 
with concern with the slow progress in setting the committee to carry out inquiry allegations of substance abuse by Kenyan runners said the custodial sentence will be part of their proposal for the anti-doping regulation. The British Broadcasting Corporation reported on Wednesday that Kenya could face censures from the World Anti-Doping Agency who could rule that they are non-compliant with its code. The issue will come up for discussion in Johannesburg at the WADA World Conference on Doping in Sport next month. And now in rugby, South African Springbok rugby head coach Heine Kamea says that he won't be making too many changes to his team that will face Wales at the Millennium Stadium on Saturday. He's looking for more continuity in the way his team plays. Mayor sheds more lights in the match plans at the team's first press conference in Cardiff yesterday. We're going to keep most of the continuity, but I think we have to change the way we play. We have to be more clinical and uh, execute better because... Uh, like you've seen in the past as well, if you make a mistake, your teams will punish you. So it's a total new mindset. You'll probably go with more or less the same team, but also introduce one or two other players and just see where they are at this moment. And now in golf, Brendan Grace and George Kuzia will represent South Africa in the ISPS Hunter World Cup of Golf at the Royal Melbourne Golf Club in Australia from November the 20th until the 24th of this year. Kuzia coming to the team for Richard Stein, who together with the South African other top-ranked players, Charles Schwarzel and any else, as well as Louis Hosezen, was not, were not available. It was both players will be missing from the South African Open Championship being played at Glen Oven Golf Club from November the 21st until the 24th of this year. Finally, with tennis, Argentina's Juan Martin Del Potro put behind him the trauma of having some of his prized possessions stolen to post a winning start at the Barclays ATP World Tour Finals. The former U.S. Open champion, who is in the same group as Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, came from a back set down to beat Richard Gasquet 7-5-7-5 in the third set. Del Potro says he's happy to have, been, to have beaten one of the toughest opponents in the tournament. In the beginning of the match, I, I couldn't be positive. Uh, I was frustrating. For the days before I came here, I was thinking too many things and not uh, play, playing my game. But then the atmosphere down there was incredible, and that helped me to, to enjoy a little bit the match. And I play good points, and finally I can beat uh, one of the tougher opponents of my group. Del Potro had a briefcase stolen in Paris on Saturday, which contained his passport, some rosary beads blessed by Pope Francis, and other personal possessions. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to the corner, Miso. Thank you to Tommy and his some, sometimes very interesting sports stories that he has for us here on African uh, Dialogue. That last one really caught my attention. Del Porto had a briefcase stolen in Paris on Saturday, which contained his passport, some rosary beads blessed by Pope Francis Nochal. Very, very interesting stories there. But in any case, that does indeed, unfortunately, bring us to the end of this installment of African Dialogue. Please continue tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And remember to visit our webpage, which is www.channelafrica.org. From me, Zikonami, so it's adios until tomorrow. Next up is Africa Midday with Benjamin Mushadam.